When you're in love, you know it. And it's the same with product market fit. It's like, if you're kind of thinking, maybe, is this product market fit? Uh, that's not product market fit. When you have product market fit, it's just like this blindingly obvious thing. I think he was talking to his mom and he was talking about, you know, all the money that, that investors had put into it and then ultimately lost. And she was like, and, and do you have to pay that back? And he's like, well, no. And actually, they want to give me more to try again. You're, you know, a little performing monkey designing some sort of algorithm that they specify. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Okay, so I, I guess the question then is, is, what's your favorite thing about hiring? Hiring? I think Specifically my... about interviews. Well, okay, so I think of interviews as a necessary evil. I think that what I like about hiring is that it's pretty cool to build a team. Mm-hmm. I think the most important realization I've had is no one person can do everything. Mm-hmm. And there's something really gratifying about building a team that's bigger than you that can produce far more than you ever could alone. Right. So I think hiring and building a team is a core competency, I think, of a, a, a startup founder. So the the context for this question was um, when, when we spoke to to Mariana in in the last episode, she talked about you know how you know interviews are are often so bad that you don't really know what you're getting and and you miss great people because like you're you're measuring for something kind of arbitrary. Well, and also I mean, so they're flawed in so many different ways. Like um, people get nervous. Mm-hmm. So this this is a big one that we deal with uh, at Circle. It's like how, how do we know that this person. Doesn't know how to do the thing we asked them to do versus just got nervous in in an interview. Yeah, it's it's like um, you know I didn't used to like people watching while I did yeah. Excel spreadsheets. I do a lot of spreadsheets to do projections, and some people are perfectly comfortable with somebody standing over their shoulder. Is it the fact that you didn't like people knowing that you could use Excel? <laughs> no, it's just something about having to do something on demand under mm-hmm. scrutiny. Right, 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 is a little bit paralyzing. Well, so I, I think there's this bias almost towards people who enjoy that. I view it almost like playing board games. Yeah. Right. You're you're solving a puzzle with another human. It's kind of a game. It's something that you optimize. It's maybe something that you practice. And of course, playing this particular kind of board game on a whiteboard with a you know nerdy interviewer or stranger is not anything at all like building software. Yeah, I think you can tend to freeze up. I think you can optimize for people that know arcane knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think you totally suppress the ability to know who's good at building a team. Or know who's building a team. Who's, who's, who's a good building block of a team. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Who's going to yeah. be able to take constructive criticism? Who's mm-hmm. going to be able to provide constructive criticism? Right, right, right. In college, we, we did a module, which I've, I've heard almost no one, no one kind of talk about since, but just sort of the, the elements of a team. And the, the, the ones that really stick in my mind are kind of the starter and the finisher. The people who can start projects and the people who can who can drive it over the line. But there, there was another one, which was the, the person who made the team like work well together. Yes. Yeah. And if you measure their output by number of lines or number of bug fix or any sort of you know quantifiable measure, maybe maybe you can't even tell that maybe they look like the worst person in a team, but actually they're they're the gel that makes the the whole team work. Well, and this kind of goes back to um, the whole holacracy thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't need managers; right, they're right, dead right, weight. Right. It's, well, no. In fact, you do. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have a whole 
thing about managers. A whole thing about holacracy. Uh, the whole thing about managers. No, about holacracy. Uh, there's this idea that you want to actually test whether someone's going to be good at their job. And no one basically knows how to do that. Even like um, basic things. Um, so when I started using Quip, I would be writing something the way I always wrote it, and then my co-founder would start making suggestions, and I found it excruciatingly painful. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was like, "This is my first draft. Please, yeah, don't, yeah. please don't look at it." And he said, "Well, it's on Quip. It's ready to be looked at." Like, and after that, I started reading everything in a text file. <laughs> and then yeah, when I mean, it was the, ready, I put it to Quip. A, I, I think that there's so many people who have different workflows, and one of the things we we found at Circle is, is that the amount of people who had different ways of running the application locally, like everyone had their own way. Some people were running it in VMware, some people in Docker, some people had like set up, you know, all sorts of weird things. And so, like, if you catch someone outside of their workflow, it's like, are you really getting a true representation of themselves, yeah. uh, of of their ability to to deliver code? Actually, let me take that back because it's not, it's not the ability to deliver code that's important, right? It's the, it's the ability to, as a team, deliver the business objectives. And so, like, if you're measuring someone can write, can you write a quicksort or a binary tree or something like that on a whiteboard? It's seventeen steps removed from. Can you can you take a product specification and digest it? Mm-hmm. Can you coordinate with other people who are in uh, systems that you're going to have to integrate with? Are you going to take constructive feedback in a code review? Mm-hmm. Are you going to wake way right what's important in terms of scalability, security, and have quality? Have you used feature flags before? Well, that that that's a new one. But thanks yeah. for wearing your T-shirt and talking about it. And, and all these are not things that you'll get out of an interview. These right, are right, right, behavioral right. things about producing software. So, so a bunch of people have started, and and I, I guess this has been going for a couple of years. But you see, Heroku, for example, talked about this of bringing engineers on site to to try and build. Something during their time, and I, I think it's it's kind of a closer approximation than than the whiteboard interview, but it's still. Uh, I mean, you're not working with people. You know, you're you're almost necessarily separated from the team because we want to see what your individual contribution is. Yeah. So when I was at Tripit, they did something I liked very much, which was they gave us a homework assignment, mm-hmm. and they said purposely, you know, don't spend too long on it. Spend about two to three hours on this, and mm-hmm. then you're going to come in and present it. So right. I was interviewing for a product job. But even that is nothing like a work with a team to deliver a business objective. Well, I mean, a lot of what a product manager's job is is mm-hmm. to write initial specifications and then present to a bigger team. Okay. So it was actually a really good way. Okay, I see that. Yeah. So um, I vividly remember what mine was because it was the nucleus of. So they just said, "Here's your problem," and I said, "Okay, to solve this problem, I need to come up with personas for business travel." Mm-hmm. So I came up with personas, and then I presented, and I said, "Here's how these personas would tackle this problem." Mm-hmm. And it was the nucleus for what I actually did once I joined. Okay, nice. So the people we interviewed after that I did not like were the people who just said. Uh, so the issue was um, basically integrating Yelp reviews into TripIt, mm-hmm. and they just got down to this very low level very quickly. Uh, right, right. So they'd already made their decision; they hadn't really looked at the goals of the. Yeah, so they just said, "Okay, we'll stick this in here. We'll do this," and it was like, "Well, what's?" For me, it was it was more important that you fit a product feature into how it's going to be used by a, a person. Right, right, right. So I, I'm looking at interviews where where I was on the on the receiving end of the interview, um, and so there was there was one at Dropbox, <laughs> um, and I didn't get this job. So you're put in a room for four hours, and every hour a new set of two people come in, and they're sitting at the other end of a, of a table from you, and then you're you know a little performing monkey. <laughs> uh, designing, designing some sort of, of algorithm that, that that they specify, and I, I remember getting into a discussion with with one of the interviewers 
a discussion is a synonym for an argument. <laughs> where basically I had made some assumptions and he didn't like my assumptions and we were just kind of talking across purposes and it got into a bit of an argument and I didn't get hired. Yeah, I mean, so when I was interviewing at TripIt, I remember I was interviewing with the founder and VP of engineering, Andy Denmark. Okay. And it was the two of us in a room. He said something pretty abrasive and sharp. Okay. And I was just like, whoa. I was like, okay. And I kind of took a breath. And was like, Either I can yell at him back or I could say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay. You know, Andy, it's interesting you say that. And he's like, I just wanted to see how you would react. I think that, I mean. And, and if, if I fucked with you. That's kind of a real dick move. I, so, I mean, it's, it's the idea that, that someone would fuck with you to see how you react is like, it was. I mean, it's it's an awful thing to do to to someone. While at the same time, it's kind of like this is what our culture is, and and you kind of got to be able to deal with our culture. I, I'm not. I'm not really sure whether it's a good or bad thing. It's funny because TripIt was an exceedingly polite culture, but it was okay. very direct. Okay, I, I, I see what like, you're saying. So nobody ever raised their voices. Nobody mm-hmm. ever shouted. I, I I don't think I heard a swear word except for occasionally. But people were very direct with feedback. Like that's not working. Okay. The other interview that that I did that was that was interesting and. Your presentation reminded me of it. Uh, this was at Lookout, and uh, at Lookout, what what they what they have you do after after you do the interviews, they have you come in and present to the entire company. Although the company might be too big at this stage, but at, at the time it was like seventy people, and about thirty five percent or thirty five of them would show up. People from all sorts of functions, not not just engineers. And so I was presenting on alias analysis and how it was useful for security. And half the people in the audience are, are sort of marketing or sales or something that that you know isn't a, an engineering function, and I'm presenting about this really hardcore esoteric uh, thing, and it's like I don't see the value in this at all. And later, I attended one of these, and I saw the value in that someone completely bombed. It was just terrible, and. I feel like they could probably have achieved that in a different way without wasting an hour of 35 people's time plus expecting the candidate to do that. Was it that they wanted to show that you're comfortable presenting your work? Was No idea. I mean, th- that wasn't a part of the job. It's funny because um, so I, I got an engineering degree mm-hmm. and part of our projects was to present our work. Like so, we had we had um, a clinic project, and you worked on it for a semester of the whole year, mm-hmm. and then you would go to the auditorium and stand in front of engineering professors who'd been in their jobs for twenty to fifty years oh, and God. were the most brittle curmudgeons you could think of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they knew far more than you ever could as an undergraduate, mm-hmm. and were eager to tell you. So, but that was excellent training for the real world. I mean, maybe, but if you go to a company that has. I mean, if if you look at all, all the different ways that you could present your your work to a thing, so you you, you could go up and, and give a PowerPoint presentation, you could be doing some sort of code review, you could be doing you're, you're sitting in a in a meeting with people like the the Jeff Bezos style of you know there's 15 minutes of reading at the start of a meeting and we don't talk, like there's all sorts of things that you ways that you could present, and I'm not sure that that it's necessarily a good idea to interview on one of them. Yeah, I guess I was going on a different tangent that I think being able to present your ideas is actually a very valuable skill, even sure, if you're sure. technical. Yeah, absolutely. Communication is is a sort of a key thing in in all elements of life. I'm not I'm not going to disagree there. Yeah, I mean, so I, I give a lot of talks about feature flagging, and I've found interesting like some of the people who ask the toughest questions or seem like the harshest critics, mm-hmm. I've found later are actually people who are interested in becoming a customer. I see. Okay, so 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 they're. 
they're thinking this sounds cool, but there's no way it can possibly work. Or I don't think you can have this area figured out. Right, right, right. And then you give them the answer, and they're like, oh, oh, they clearly know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So it's like people who are like, well, how do you handle this? And I think yeah. they're being a little pushy. It's because they care. This is something that's bothered them in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they're asking questions because they're engaged. Right. It's the people who don't ask any questions who just who don't care. Well, the, the, there's also the the kind of people who ask questions to show off what they know. Oh yeah. And at conferences, these are the worst people. Well, those those were our engineering professors. Right, right. Like right, of right, course, right, you've been yeah. in the field for thirty years. Yeah. You know more than me as an undergrad. There's a certain amount of just like what kind of person it is who's asking them. There's this very very famous CS professor who, who invented a whole branch of uh, compiler stuff who, who I'm not going to mention because he's a bit of an asshole. <laughs> Um, and we were at this conference, and he, he consistently asked like you know really really nasty questions. And there was one guy he asked the question, and the, the guy kind of froze, and he's like, "Oh, I I, I don't know that, that maybe there was a language barrier as well." And the guy eventually goes, "You know, it's okay. You don't need to answer. I knew the answer anyway." Oh, so that reminds me. Um, I think there are people who think that if they make other people look bad, they look good. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. I, I was talking to. I'm not going to name the company, but uh. It's a gaming company, and I'd worked with the founder before at another job. Mm-hmm. And he's notorious for screaming fits at his employees. Just, you know, you all suck, mm-hmm. you all fucked up, this is awful, why do I have such idiots? And my take on that, now that I'm further along in my career, is that you are the scene founder. Mm-hmm. If you are screaming at everybody that works for you for being incompetent yeah, fuck-ups, yeah, yeah. you know who's the incompetent fuck-up? It's clearly the founder. Yeah, you yeah, have, yeah. number one, not hired good people, Yeah, and number two, not trained and mentored them to be better people. And also, you yourself appear to have some deep psychological issues that maybe you should be talking to someone about. Yeah, I mean, if, if truly everybody around you is incompetent... right? And you hired them all, and you hired them all, right. and you have not either mentored them to be better or... So, so what you're saying is, is that he was bad at interviewing? <laughs> it's funny because he actually um, he interviewed me. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the job. I worked for uh, a related company to his, mm-hmm. and once we worked together for about six months, he tried very hard to hire me. Oh, right, interesting. Because he's like, "Well, wow, Edith is actually really good. I really want her to work for me." And I was like, "No." So you know, clearly, then that they had an interview process that was that was failing, right? Because they couldn't identify or, or whatever. And my sense is that absolutely nobody in the valley, possibly in the whole world, knows how to how to do interviewing at all. I, I, I mean, perhaps it's not even possible. I was about to say, I'm sure some people are, but we were talking before about how Google, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so Google, fifty percent, I think, is the number that they estimate people who they hire who who were successful within their roles. And it's they did another study actually where they studied the most successful teams, mm-hmm. and the most successful teams were not the ones with the highest. You know, smarts or scores. Mm-hmm. It was the one where they worked together best as a team. Right. The people that I continue to be very impressed by are the people who don't necessarily have you know a CS pedigree and don't come across as like all knowing and, and and often don't know that much like algorithms or or kind of imp- impressive stuff, but are just able to like get stuff done. And it's usually through their own like personal focus. They're able to like sit at a desk and produce code. Business output, whatever it is, for like eight hours, and that beats the pants off. You know, someone who's who's got all this like pedigree or or who knows like operating systems in and out, but you know, gets constantly distracted by IRC or Hacker News or or, you know, a shiny thing over there. 
And, and also, I think somebody who can keep coming back to this, who can work with other people, whether mm-hmm. they be, and Mariana just talked about this, whether they be people in their own community, in other teams or right, partners. Right. It, it, it kind of comes back to how teams are structured. And I wonder if you can even hire without knowing what team that person is going to be on or, or what role they, they're going to they're gonna function it in the team. You mean more of a Google style of let's hire a thousand people and let God sort them out? Yeah. So I mean, I, I certainly think you could hire a thousand people and it's like, okay, this person is going to be very good at gelling a team together. Let us find a team where where, where that works. Where, where, where team that works. needs gelling. Yeah. Exactly. I, I'm not sure if that's what that's what Google does. I, I, the impression I get is no. But like, people are clearly not replaceable cogs in in the way that people would like them to be, and. If you're going to interview people as if they're replaceable cogs, or as if you know every everyone that you interview is is the same as the next person, you you, you can't possibly be successful. The thing that, that we talked about at the start of the episode, where you know someone gets nervous, it's like, are are we going to say that that all people who get nervous in interviews are are bad at their jobs? And that, that couldn't possibly be true. Oh gosh! So I, I flashback. So I interviewed at Tripit, and I also interviewed with Greg Brockway, the founder. Mm-hmm. Who has a very interesting speaking style of it's very direct. Okay. And he asked me a question and I absolutely froze. And it was this the silliest question for me to freeze on. He asked me if I read. Okay. And I read a lot. Okay. Like I, I Oh, and you froze because like there's there just too many directions to answer. Yeah, and, and he like uh, and he's like, What do you like to read? I'm like, I mean, you you've seen all my books. I mean right, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I read yeah, a that's lot. An amazing class. <laughs> and I finally I stumbled out on um, books. <laughs> He's like, and he said, "What kind of books?" I'm like, "All of them." <laughs> and I walked out, and I said, "I didn't get that job." And but you got it. I got the job. Okay, right, right. But uh, it's just sometimes people just freeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things you see where, where, where this comes up a lot is in sort of uh, marginalized communities or, or, or people who are not well represented in. In the tech industry, so so people like pattern match basically, and so they, they see you know it's another white male engineer. It's like great, right? He'll 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 fit really well in our StarCraft league, and someone who who doesn't fit in that doesn't do so well. And, and I think if you're if you're the kind of nervous engineer, then you're not one of the confident people who are confident in their interviews, and therefore you don't pattern match. Yeah, it's funny. So um, so James Smith gave me some really good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, he's about. I'd say a year to two years ahead of Launch Darkly. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to hire a first marketing person. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because I kept interviewing people. I would look them up on LinkedIn and he had he was connected. And he'd say, Oh, I interviewed them a year ago. Yeah. He gave me very good advice, which was marketing people are very good at marketing themselves. I see. By definition. I mean, are they? Well, he said, you know, he said, watch out. Oh, oh, okay, right, right, right. So you know they're good at marketing. C- c- like, can like, I challenge that briefly? Yeah. So Marketing is, you know, there's brand marketing, right? And uh, there's sort of you know, what was traditionally marketing like 10 or 15 years ago. And now a lot of marketing is digital marketing. It's, it's analytics and it's funnels and it's numbers and it's, it's correlations and, and all that sort of thing and um, optimizing all, all these things. All the things. All the things. And it's really not branding anymore. At least, at least it's not the same function that 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 I think uh, most SaaS companies are looking for in in marketers, and so like if they're really good at marketing themselves, perhaps that's a sign that they're the brand marketers that you're not looking for. Whereas you know maybe the person that you're looking for is someone who comes in and and you know can't look you in the eye but gives you a spreadsheet. That's very meta of you. 
I think you do need both. I mean, you do need somebody who can write good copy. You do need somebody who can, mm-hmm. you know, craft a message. Sure, but sure, you do sure, need right. to yeah. pair that with analytics. Yeah, I'm. I'm just saying. Maybe good marketers are not necessarily good at branding. To today for SaaS companies. Hmm. I think you can also you have to be careful if somebody is too good at branding because they're they're going to convince you that they're. Oh, they might be too concerned about their personal brand rather than mm-hmm. the company. Right. So the, the, this is something that, that's kind of creeping its way into engineering and it has been for the last maybe, maybe decade or so. The people who, who build projects, open source projects especially, and who are able to create a lot of traction for, for their open source projects, and then who, who come to your company and are a lot more interested with their, with their own personal brand and promoting themselves rather than like working on the, the hard problems that, that your company needs. Yeah, I got a long discussion with a friend of mine about this. You know, there are some rock star developers. Mm-hmm. And as you put it, maybe they're very good at building this open source project, but they're not very good at working on a team. Right, right, right. Um, I mean, the, the, that's kind of the definition of a rock star, right? That they're the person that the spotlight is on. And maybe you actually need like the bassist. Yeah, I, I in fact despise the phrase rock star. Okay. I think we talked about. This. I I feel like we did. Did we have an episode where we talked about like 10x developers or that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, we'll we'll just recap briefly. Yeah, like, sure. Like as you said, I, I think I think a successful team is more like a chorus or an orchestra. You know, you have your tubist, your trombonist, yeah, your viola, yeah, yeah. your your person who's doing the cymbals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a little triangle in the corner. Yeah. And they're all specialists in their little part, but they're all playing together and they're making a sound that is so much bigger than any of these individual parts. Yep. That's a successful team, the, and if they're all like playing at different times and right, not right, right. not paying attention to where everybody else is playing, you have noise. Mm-hmm. You have a cacophony. I, I had an interesting experience. I, I went to see Joshua Bell, who's a famous uh, violinist, play uh, a couple of weeks ago, and ignoring when Joshua Bell was on stage, which wasn't all of it, but there, there was a conductor, and the conductor was very, very full of himself, ah. uh, and like he, he was waving his arms around in in a in a way that sort of indicated that that he was not so much communicating with the thing as like you know performing himself, showboating, showboating. Very good word, and I I, I think that this is you know, one of the reasons that engineers can often hate working with PMs or or, or with managers because you you get someone who. Who isn't really contributing, but who's like waving their arms around frenetically? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's always the case because a, a good conductor, no doubt, is is exceptionally valuable for for making a team, for gelling a team, bringing it together, making the sound work just right. But then you you know, if you get a bad one and, and they're getting all the all the credit for for the team, to, uh, for all the team's effort, then it's not uh, it's not a fun experience to be on that team. Yeah, I mean that goes back to, um, like I said, the bad manager is the one who yells at his team and tells his yeah, or her yeah, team yeah, and tells yeah, them yeah. all idiots. Like I work with a guy who is notorious for everything is all broken. Everybody who works for me is a ninny. Only I can save the day. Mm-hmm. And he did this three times, so I was like, okay, the That's issue. A tough one. The issue is not that everybody on your team is a ninny. It's that yeah. you let things fall apart. So uh, th- th- this is something that the the, the 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 firefighter versus the quiet person who just gets shit done. Right. Th- this is something that I struggled with because I certainly in, in the early days of Circle, I, I really didn't have any idea how to sort of put out a product vision, and there was all this code that was being delivered where I'd stop it at the last minute and I'd be like, oh no, this is all wrong. Oh, the seagull style. Oh um, man, it was it, it like, is corrosive. It, was, it really was. It was it was very very toxic. It's um, and it, it created all sorts of problems within within the team that that it took it took years to to fix uh, that sort of thing. So I, I had that happen to me too from the other end. But why, why do you think it was toxic? Well, just like 
you know, people people put all this effort in, and then it's like literally just before you're about to ship that you're told no, like it's all wrong. Yeah. Like I don't know if you've seen uh, James Lindenbaum's. <laughs> you're doing the, it wrong. The, yeah. The, so James as a service. Yeah. Is is a thing that Heroku people built for. It's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so it's like James as a service dot Heroku app dot com or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was, it was it was the same kind of thing. It's like no, this is wrong for for reasons I'm not quite able to articulate, and I certainly should have articulated before you started writing code in it. Yeah, I mean, so this happened to me early in my career. From the other end, um, I was working on a project, and back then we had UATs, user accepting testing, mm-hmm. which is basically it's all done. So I was in engineering at the time. Mm-hmm. The thing is all done. It's built. It's past QA. We're about to ship it. And we show it to our VP of product. Actually, no, he was mm-hmm. the co-founder at the time. And it's mainly for us to walk through it, yeah, so that he can do his own demos. That was what we thought the purpose was. Right, right, right. And his purpose? He alerted. He's like, "This is not what I want at all. Not what I want at all. Wow, at all." And I looked at the product manager I'd worked with, and I said, "This is just what the product manager had." Yeah. Like I did a lot of meetings with the product manager. Yeah. And he's like, "Product manager's wrong." And so and, was was the product manager wrong? I don't know. So I was an engineer and he, he looked at the product manager and said the product manager is, who worked for him is yeah. an idiot. Oh. This isn't what you should have built. And he grabbed the mouse and he went to a competitor's site. He's like, this is what you should have built. And I said, well, you know, we built this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just supposed to be, you know, the UAT where you accept it. He's like, this UAT has failed. Oh. Yeah. And I think a lot of my career has been in revulsion to that moment. Right, right, right. right. Okay. You know, that's why I became a product manager because I didn't want to have projects like that anymore. I was right. like, well, if I'll be a better product manager. And, but really, it was just the the whole idea of getting feedback as soon as possible from everybody, right. internal and external. Yeah, uh, I often give people advice on you know, you're you've just raised a seed round, or, or maybe you're, you're you're trying to get from product market fit to like you know the bit just after product market fit, and, we, and often we talk about. Company culture and, and and what is the structure of your company going to be like? And the the thing that I try to convey most of all is how important it is to set your your culture and your mission and your your product vision and your values. Because if you don't have those, then everyone is going to be going in their own direction. I mean, they're going to be going in their own direction anyway. But like, the more closely you can make sure that everyone on your team knows what it is you're building, why it is you're building it. You know who you are as as a people together. The less you're going to have exactly what you talked about. You know where where you get to the you get to the final hurdle, and someone says this UAT has failed. Yeah, and I didn't see it as a hurdle. I thought we were just, you know, I thought it was our opportunity to get the pat on the back and thanks yeah, for yeah, your yeah. work done. And like all the engineers, I were looking at each other, shell shocked. It was it was all their first time getting that getting that feedback or in front of one of these things. I think so. Yeah. Right. So presumably you you quit on the spot. You're like the, this company is clearly dysfunctional and oh, I was a kid. I know, I know. know. Yeah, yeah. No, I we went back, we rebuilt it, you know, from scratch. Right. Yeah, so it was, what, such, but it was it, such a waste of effort. So in the end, was he right? I don't know. Okay. I really don't know. I don't know if whether what we'd done would have been fine or not. Yeah. I mean, clearly he was wrong in the sense that. He should have created a process within his company where where you get that at the start. Yeah, he should have um, not. He should have not sent my product managers a ninny. Yeah, 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 yeah. And why did you listen to what he was saying? Yeah, it's like, dude, you hired him. Uh, I, I get mocked a lot in Circle for for referring to things as shit. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I, I try say? not to do it about about our own stuff, but it, you know, often you look at something that maybe was built a couple of years ago. And that seemed like a good idea at the time. You're just like, you know, how is this still in the product? Yeah. 
Well, you know, if you're not completely embarrassed by it, yeah, exactly, you exactly. Too and, long and to you, ship. I, I know in theory that like shipping some things that were shit was was an is a necessary element, if if only from like an experimentation point of if view. If only to discover that something you thought was important, nobody cares about. Right. Yes. Exactly. And sometimes they're still there because, like, sometimes it's more important to to build the thing that the, someone is saying, or you know, the, the, this thing is like no one uses it, so it's kind of a very low priority to to get rid of it or something. Yeah, it goes it goes back to Dave McClure's saying, like, kill a feature. Right, right. So then there's you know there's lots of things that are shit, and I I got mocked uh, <laughs> I, I think from from a lot of my my uh, employees because. Uh, because I would refer to things as shit. It's like you know, this is shit. We need to fix it. You know, this is shit. We need to fix it. And I, I tried very hard to make it so that it wasn't you know the thing that you have built is shit, or, or you as a person are shit. But like you know, pe- people are still tied into the things that they built and and the ideas that they had and and, and that sort of thing. So it can be very hard to, and especially if you're a former engineer as a as a sort of a first time manager, a first time company founder, to to figure out careful ways of expressing. That you want to make the product better for reasons, or you know, c- comparing it to to where the the product currently is. Well, and it's also it delicately. It's also a matter of um, prioritization. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything can't be absolutely perfect. No, of course not. And, and if it is, you've probably failed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's trade offs. It's like okay, this is not as strong as we want it to be, but we were focusing on this other thing. Or, yeah. Which which also to tie it back to the original, it's very hard to interview for that. Right, right, exactly. Like what what you were saying about the the trip managers was you know testing you for how you handled direct feedback, and it's like you know, the more I think about it, the the more useful that is. As a, I mean, it's, it's so you've swung around in the course of well, yeah. I mean, like the if it's a culture of direct feedback, then it doesn't do anyone any good to, to hire someone who who doesn't work well with with direct feedback. Yeah, I just was like, well, that's a little bit harsh, but okay. Right, 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 right. Take a breath. But at the same you... time, it, it, I mean, it looks it looks almost abusive to do to a. To an interviewee, I guess I've been in a very, I've been in far, very, very tough engineering cultures, and I thought this was minor compared to what I'd heard before. Right. I mean, I, I think the opposite is also very painful if your stuff is terrible, but nobody tells you. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. That 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 is the worst. There's this idea of you know m- m- millennials are, are coming up and into the workforce and and uh, and that sort of thing, and and I, I heard everything before when it was Gen X. Like everybody complains about the new generation, right? And the, the specific things that, that that people complain about millennials are are things like safe spaces and and you know they, they've no way of of taking feedback and, and and that kind of thing. They want everything to be to be you know delightful and shiny and and. I know for some reason the word "my little pony" popped into my head. Are you a brony? No, no. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. But still, I am not a brony. This is a safe space, Paul. <laughs> so you can let um, your mane down. So you, you, you and go you, you, graze you, in the pasture. So you, you've got people who believe very strongly and and with very good reason that like you know everything should be nice and people should be nice to each other and and then there's you know work cultures that that are emphatically not that not every work culture but every work culture is different and and they're they're not necessarily pla- they're places where people say things directly they're, they're places where people have different beliefs than other people um, in the organization you kind of need to interview for that in a certain sense is is this person going to be successful within this company and I see a lot of criticism of interviewing and, and, and interviews where they're not Let's say as open to to the person who who is interviewing as as they could be. When we hired very early on, we had a focus on 
work-life separation. So uh, it, it just sort of happened that that uh, a lot of the first engineers that we hired had had families, very often had had young kids, and so it was it was important to people to to have that work-life separation. But when you're uh, an early stage startup, th- th- there are often times that you need to do something outside of, of you know, the regular nine to five or outside someone's regular nine to five hours. But the fact that we had created this work life separation thing made it made it very difficult for me to feel that it was okay to call people late in, in an emergency. So what we've done is we've been very flexible about hours. Mm-hmm. Like we have engineers who work half days. Yeah, yeah. But in return, it's like okay. You know, you might get to work a half day every week yeah. on a Wednesday, but in return, we're we're going to call you at three a.m. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And you know, that, so we, you, and so we were we were explicit about that trade off. Right, right, you know, right, right. It's like you have a family. So so you know, with each one of these things, each one of these requirements, you get an an increasingly small intersection in the Venn diagram sense of, of people who can manage to do this. And and if you hire. If you hire someone who who has you know major objections to being called at three a.m. or who doesn't like to go for lunch or you know, doesn't like Starcraft, you know whatever it is, you can get to like real problems, and that's not not even including the the legally protected things. Well, I think in a small company you have to be really ruthless about mm-hmm. this person has a huge impact on your culture. Right. The issue is not so much whether or not you can find them. the The, the issue is. When you interview for these people, there's now six facets oh, of, that's of things was... that you need to interview for, and then the interview is a, a whiteboard coding challenge. <laughs> I think, though, I mean, a startup is creating value out of nothing. It's, it's not like a big company where you can hire somebody for two years and see if it works out. Mm-hmm. If somebody doesn't make a difference in two months at a startup, mm-hmm. it's a well, lifetime. But very often, you have to hire them without that knowledge. Yeah, I right, mean, like. Maybe maybe you you wait two months and it's it's hire fast fire fast sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, well, you, you talked about this in one of your famous posts. Oh, which one is this? The guy who wouldn't work on Sundays. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that that was employee one. So, what, uh, like in hindsight, what would you have done differently with that? We failed. We failed to set expectations. We, 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 so that, that's one of my, a lot of my questions about yeah. support blogging. There were setting expectations. I, I guess. I guess we failed to know what the expectations were ourselves, and and to even agree amongst you know, me and the the other co-founder as to what the expectations were. Like I didn't know that I would have this adverse reaction to someone, you know, it being Sunday they wanted to work on their own stuff. I was like, oh, you know, I, I didn't realize until until it happened that that was a thing. Yeah, early startups are hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, startups are really yeah. We're two years in, and sometimes I look back and I'm like, whoa. I mean, we we talked about about this with Martine the other day. Mm. You kind of wonder how anyone gets startups going at all. They're still really fun. Like I get up every day excited. I mean, startups have lots and lots of excitement, but like not there's, excitement there's like a lot of like just awfulness. Excitement. It's it's fun now that we have you know customers using us. It's fun yeah. that our customers like so we just hit a hundred billion flags. That's a lot. A hundred billion flags a month. Wow. That's a lot. That's, That's a really lot of flags. I mean, I'm an engineer. To think that we created this from nothing is right, right, right. is pretty super cool. I, I can't even think how much that represents. Our major measure was like how many machines were in use. Like we had, you know, we had the graph of how many machines were in use, and and Amazon know, had that graph too, and it had a well, little yeah. dollar sign next to yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, one day we're on like ten machines. We're like, holy shit! You know, like there's ten machines in production, and then you know, a couple of years later, there's a thousand machines or. Yeah. I don't even know how many are in production now, and it's like wow, like that's our, our little rinky-dinky ten machines is 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 now like you know, we we don't even notice. 
Yeah, I don't celebrate in machines because I pay the Amazon bill every month, and I'm like, oh. I mean, we, we paid the Amazon bill as well, and that was that was terrifying in its own way. So I think you brought up an interesting point, though. I think sometimes interviews fail because people don't know what they're interviewing for. Which sounds I would say, as an industry, no one has any idea what they're interviewing for. So actually, let, let me talk about a really good interview. I went, I went to. This was to be an intern at Barclays Capital. Yep. It was a two-day interview. They flew over a hundred of us in at the same time to, to do these things. And they sat us in groups and they told us to solve a problem. And it was like, I think they're like, okay, we're going to stand 10 of you in a row and you have to like sort yourselves into ascending order. And so we sat around a table and we discussed like how we would communicate bubble sort to <laughs> each other. And you know, it was mostly about communication. There was a small bit of like technical stuff. And you know, there the, were sort of like natural leaders and natural followers who, who sort of established themselves in the thing, and, and they needed both. And they were, you know, th- they knew what they were hiring for, and it very much wasn't, you know, technical skill. It was, it was teamwork, right? It was it was teamwork, and there was, you know, Barclays. There was no technical skill required at all. Like there, 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 there were some people who built, you know, impressive distributed systems and, and and that sort of thing. But like, what I did in my internship was I added a field to a to a database. Like it was it was terrible. And like as a result, the teamwork was the the, the thing that really mattered. Yeah, it, it reminds me of um, I forget. I, I'm not going to name the name of the software, but a company. But it was a big software company that at the time it starts with a G. I, at the time, there was this thing for a while that you don't need product managers. Oh yeah, yeah that they yeah. get in the way of engineers. I mean, so, they're not wrong. <laughs> That's kind of the point, right? <laughs> <laughs> so they they didn't hire product managers. Oh, okay. And, but then they realized that the people who were always in demand on their teams yeah. were the engineers who were product managery. Right, 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 right. I had the belief when when we started Circle that like good engineers were were good product managers, and it's like I had a good sense of product vision, and I I you know considered it as an important part of a product that I was building, and so I kind of thought that that was what it was to be an engineer, and as a result, we we hired a bunch of people. By you know whiteboard challenges and, and other engineering things, and then I was shocked that like shocked. Yeah, I, no, I I actually was shocked um, that that they didn't that they didn't know how to like you know build product. And I was like, oh, maybe maybe that's just me. Maybe it's not maybe it's not a thing that like that a whiteboard challenge tests for. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think I'm very ordinary, but and then I'm surprised that I have skills that other people don't have. I mean, you, you must, right? Like everyone has skills that 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 other people have that other people don't have. Yeah, I mean, I, I took it for granted. Um, so I was talking to a friend whose company has failed. You, you probably know who it is, but um, it was uh, an engineer and a product person, mm-hmm. and they built a product. And what he said, he said, um, I didn't realize that you really had to go out and market it and sell it. Mm, right, right. Which sounds horrendously naive. Yeah. But he, he was very earnest about it, and it's like, no, I've been managing revenue for as part of my product job yeah. for the past eight years. Like I, I was responsible for growing revenue. It was a line item I cared about. I was mm-hmm. very ruthless about that. A lot well, of product people just do not have that as part of their responsibilities. Well, th- this is why it can be so valuable to work as an engineer at a at a twenty person company. I was picturing a rocket. Yeah, twenty-six. <laughs> yeah. And I was picturing Elon Musk. You're gonna Musk. be in the bit that's discarded at the start. <laughs> um, no, at like an early stage company that 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 crosses milestones in yeah. particular, and that 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 
cross those milestones from like you know the 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 ten to the twenty to the fifty to the hundred, or you know any one of those. Like you 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 will learn a lot in terms of what's failing and what you need to hire to deal with those failing, and then like seeing the before and the after and know, knowing where where the value is. Yeah, I mean, so we we started us off about talking about jobs you didn't get. I, I very much wanted a job that I didn't get. Mm-hmm. Didn't get it, and so where uh, it was at Flickster. Okay. Um, I very much want to get work at Flickster. Um, I would have been their first product manager. Mm-hmm. Got deep in the interviews, and I'd come out of enterprise software, and they looked at me and they said very nicely, "You seem very competent, but mm-hmm. we want somebody who's been there, done that with consumer software." Right. And I was like. That's fair. Yeah, didn't get that job. I worked instead at Military.com, which was great because she gave me my boss said we're making X amount of millions of revenue, make it X plus twenty five percent in a year. Mm-hmm. I said, well, what, what, what do I do to do that? She said, figure it out. Nice, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was the thing that you needed at that stage in your career, and I figured it out. I got the revenue up. Yeah, and um, I went later and I talked to the guy who had gotten that job, mm-hmm. and he said, yeah, you didn't want that job. And why was that? You know, you would have just been a product manager. You would have gotten revenue responsibility. Right. You wouldn't have become the person you are, basically. Yeah, yeah. The amount of growth that people have at early stage startups versus much later stage startups, like you see kids who come out of college and they go to Google. And while I think there's a great amount of things to be learned at Google, like it's just incomparable to the amount that you learn as an early engineer at an early stage startup. Well, I think there's good early stage startups and there's bad early stage startups. I, even even if you work at the bad ones, I think that like you learn so much from them. What do you What do you think the lessons you learn are? Well, I mean, you, you learn what doesn't work. It's like you know, yelling at people is a, is a terrible <laughs> management tactic. It's not a management tactic. Well, yeah, it, it, <laughs> so exactly. It's more like right? an anti tactic. Right, right, and it's like you know, the the I think there's so much to learn from failure, and and having failed a number of startups at this point, I think. You know, a lot of what made Circle successful is what I learned from failing at the other ones. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of value in uh, not even having failed, but to have gotten a rhythm of this is how. So Mariana talked about this before. Of this is how we do things successfully. Right, right, exactly. And and part of that is is you know this is what unsuccessful looks like. Yeah. So knowing, I, I get asked a lot like, what does product like? How do you know when you have product market fit? My answer is generally like it, it, it's kind of like being in love, right? <laughs> you can think sometimes that you're in love, but when you're in love, you, you know it. And it's the same with product market fit. It's like you can kind of, if you're kind of thinking, maybe is this product market? I, that, that's not product market fit. When you have product market fit, it's just like this blindingly obvious thing that like you know it's taking off. You you can't stop customers from using it. It's it feels nothing like the the feeling of not having product market fit. Well, not to be a curmudgeon, but the, that's hormones and it, it wears off. Okay, maybe it wasn't the greatest analogy in the world. Oh, we talked about this before, where you think you have it, but you don't. You're just at a local maximum. Like mm-hmm. Secret thought it had product market fit. It had something. Like I, 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 th- I think Secret is is this really, really interesting case study, especially around the um, the investment. Like people, people put like the, 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 there was a big secondary. I think like three or four million was taken, six million was taken off the table in, in a secondary investment. Yeah, and then when when it failed, people were like, "Give back the money." It's like no. It's like no, of course not. That that's, that's, that's why not, we took secondary. Yeah, that's that's not the bargain. I think even when the VCs wrote a, a thing about like they should give the money back, and I was like, I don't know if I'd ever work with that VC as yeah. a result of of him saying that. Yeah, I think that's a thing that we have in the states, which allows people to do startups. The idea of um, limited liability. Right, right, right. Like people are very hesitant to do startups, like for for example in Japan, because you're personally liable. Yeah, Phil Greenspan, who made Arzigida, had a very interesting blog post where he was, I think he was talking to his mom, 
and he was talking about you know all the all the money that that investors had had put into it and then ultimately lost and she was like and, and do you have to pay that back and he's like well no no not at all and actually they want to give me more to try again <laughs> yeah i mean so i remember my mom's quote when i started the company i was I was afraid of telling her. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom's worked her whole life at basically, so she retired, I think, after 25 or 30 years at Lockheed Martin. Mm-hmm. So she'd been there when it was Martin Marietta. They got acquired by Lockheed. Same job, actually went to scholarship uh, in college on a Lockheed scholarship. So for me to tell her that um, I was going to go work at not just a risky startup, but my own risky startup, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really want to tell her. Uh, it's because she had a more risk-averse career than than you had. Yeah, right. Like, and same, my my grandfather had worked his whole life at Bell, mm-hmm. so I really dreaded telling her. Like, I didn't actually tell her until I had left my job, mm-hmm. and I had started working the startup, and they were coming to visit. I was like, oh, they're going to want to see my office. I should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, here's my office. <laughs> it's, it's 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 a closet in someone else's office. And, uh, so I wasn't even that. I mean, I literally I was literally working out of my apartment. Right, right. Um, John and I didn't even have an office, so I finally um, I finally like, all right. I, I need to just tell her. So I called her and I told her, and she said, "Well, Edith, I've seen many idiots start startups. You're smarter than most idiots." <laughs> I think uh, we've drifted away from interviewing, but I think you do have to kind of be an idiot to start a startup. Mm-hmm. I mean, pitching is, is kind of interviewing in, in a certain way. It is. Oh. It is. It's very artificial. Yeah, There's, and then people are judging you on things that don't matter, even in the slightest. It's very artificial. It's very screening for things that might not matter. Yeah, the the pattern matching for, like, uh, Paul Graham talked about the, this guy that they funded because he he literally looked like Mark Zuckerberg. And then they realized immediately afterwards, like this, that was a terrible thing. Like, what, what kind of idiots are we for for doing that that pattern matching? And then they controlled against it. But like, even even someone as as smart and experienced as Paul Graham, like, makes that silly mistake. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of it is that VCs are going for really outsized returns. Yeah. So they're not going for five percent return. I had coffee with uh, with Martin a couple of weeks ago. And he told me about this experiment. I, I don't remember where, where it was done, but it was like there was, there was three animals of some kind, like ducks, let's say, and one of them was like fed on a schedule, and one of them was fed randomly, and one of them was fed when they when they pressed the button. And the duck that was fed on a schedule would start to arrive like a couple of minutes before the schedule for its feeding. The duck that pressed a button would press the button when it was hungry, and it just got in the habit of that. And then the other duck just went absolutely insane oh, yeah. because it had no idea when the food was coming, and so like it would it would tap its foot three times and like touch its head and like quack or you know whatever to, to get the food. And this feels a lot like what VCs are doing. Right? Yeah. They, they they have no idea what works, and so they they look for some kind of. I mean, there possibly is no no pattern that that works, but they they have to discern some sort of pattern amongst the tea leaves and 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 figure it out. And so a lot of the times, it's going to look fucking stupid. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's easy in hindsight to pick on like, why do you fund Yo? Yeah. Or why do you fund Secret? And I think in a VC's head, these are going to be the next Instagram or WhatsApp. I mean, I, I did the numbers on on Secret. And there was like that. That was absolutely fun. No questions asked. Like it. Well, the, the people thought it was going to be the next. Like I said. I mean, but if you just look at the expected value, if it had been the next thing, let's say, okay, you know, companies that get to the stage that Secret are at, you know, there's a ten percent chance of it becoming the next 
Facebook. And if it does, then that means our investment right now is worth 10 million. Yeah. And I have to put in 10 million to get that 10 billion. Fuck yeah. Yeah. And so there's a 10%, so you have to discount that that thousand time return by by 10 for for the you know, to get your expected value, but like it, it was a no-brainer for for anyone who can do basic math. And obviously VCs are very good at basic math. Yeah, I mean I think that's why the dev tool space has struggled a little bit. Not not so much anymore. Well, not so much anymore. Yeah. I mean, once it was established, it was it was very easy to you know pe- people were like, oh yeah, devs devs are, are the great things. But I in 2011, people were like yeah, de- developers don't pay for money. I have an email from Paul Graham saying developers don't pay for tools. Yeah, and I think I still get that. I still get that you know developer tools will never be big. I, I think mm-hmm. people don't realize, as Mariana said, that tooling has become essential. Right, right, right. Like you don't have a carpenter show up at a work site and say, "Hey, you need to build a hammer, yeah, and a level before you can start working." Well, I, I think people don't realize like how much space there is in tools. Like okay. it's it's not just hammers, right? There's 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 nails. There's people who are there's who, screwdriver who, who are you know building companies that are you know we, we we are we are the hammer that every company uses as a service. Yeah, I, I think also. Um, it's funny, so I do due diligence now for other VCs, which mm-hmm. is, and I always feel a little sheepish about it because you know I was vetting somebody's idea the other day, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I don't think that's a big idea at all. I'm sure, and I heard this echo in my head of people saying that about yeah, yeah. about our idea, so, because uh, when we when we came out, we were considered crazy. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember the first time I heard, it, I was like, "This is ludicrous." Yeah. So, what was your reaction yeah. when you? I, I, uh, I was like, I wrote a library to do this in like ten lines. This this is ludicrous. Who who would pay for this? Yeah. Now you're now your customer. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because it turns out that once you implement it five times in five different ways, you're like, oh, maybe there's a maybe there's an abstraction here, and maybe they've got it. Yeah. So I yeah. I, I think any idea when it starts out is either completely blind and obvious or seems so stupid. Right. And so and we were certainly in the so stupid camp. Everybody's like, what? what? Nobody. Who needs that? Who would pay money for that? Right, right. So Google acquired Apogee. Yeah. Right. And I was like, oh, I, I forget what Apogee did, but like, I, I guess they must have failed. No, 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 no. Google bought public company Apogee for six hundred twenty-five million. Yep. And I still don't know, know what Apogee does. API um, management. Yeah. I mean, clearly. Right. I mean, clearly, I don't know why you need API management. It's hilarious because I think people think of the dev tool space as this uniform thing. Right, right, right. And, and it's not. Like so I mean remember when Scott Rainey came on, he's like, you know, the, the, there's these four different areas of, of dev tools. And there's the you know, there's the people who are actually making like editors, and then there's the people who are making SaaS tools like Circle, and then there's the people who are making products that, that appeal to developers like Stripe and, and like those are completely different categories. Yeah, or even like um I think there's stuff that's within the stack. Mm-hmm. Like within a data center, that's just I have no clue about. Right, because I've never had a data center. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like sometimes you know, I'm like, uh, so my my VC friend put it the best. He's like, yeah, there's people who invest deep in the stack. I'm not one of them. Right, right. Because presumably they don't know it. Don't, they don't, don't know invest it. in what you don't know. It, it's very funny. He was actually the guy who um, was at Salesforce and who acquired Heroku. Okay. So he was corporate development. Right, right, right. So we're it was interesting. I was like, oh, we're in the we're in the house that Heroku no, built. This is a Billy. Billy. Yeah. Smart guy. So it's very much like interviewing, right? So so you're you're talking to this person and you're trying to discern some like pixie dust about what makes them special in some way. And I think if you're a good company, you're also interviewing the VC. Like, is this a VC I want to work with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I, I've gotten very strong warnings about a couple of firms. 
just do not work with them. Yeah, I, I, I could give I could give a couple of warnings and, and have gotten warnings myself about those. Yeah, it's like good advice I got was. Um, do you want to name some there? <laughs> We're all friends of the valley. <laughs> <laughs> Long career, small place. <laughs> the best advice I got was um, it was from my friend Mike Beeb, who had actually um, gone through YC. Mm-hmm. He said, "Trust that you'll find an investor, but what you're really trying to do is find the right fit." Mm-hmm. Because you're going to be with this person for a long time. Yep, like a long time. For people who want to be company founders, like the, 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 there's a lot of, of lore around, or um, a lot of excitement, a lot of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Shininess uh, around becoming a company founder these days. Oh, it's like I said, it's it's like being a screenwriter in LA. Or right, right, right. Yeah, and there's and there's just there's just so many of these things that you have to do, and like you're you're signing up for them, and if you're, you're not signing up for them, don't don't found a company. Yeah, I mean, I think people get confused with the successful startup that has raised a B, C, or D, mm-hmm. where you go to all the conferences and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You, you stand know, up on the stage and people are like, oh my god, that person. Yeah. And there's yeah. all the grunt work before that, like yeah, you know, and you, pro- you probably never reach that reach that level. Yeah, like m- m- most companies fail. Yeah, most companies fail, and you you just have the sheer grunt work to get a company going. Yeah. I, I find it fascinating when I'm talking to large companies, right? Like uh, I remember uh, talking to Symantec and, and talking to VMware, and you know I'm talking to some you know, mid-level manager or something like that. And he's like, you know, I had a startup, and I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I sold the startup to to you know said company uh, for you know a certain amount of money, and I was like, there's just all these companies that you've never heard of where they get acquired for good amount of like life-changing money, and then the person goes and sort of you know retires quietly to be a middle manager at, at that's that startup and you know has a family or whatever it is that, that that fulfills them afterwards but there's just you you never hear of most acquired exited startups because their founders do not get to stand on stage and do the exciting things and keynote things and, and all that jazz but they built a thing and then it kind of quietly went away maybe they don't want to go stand on the conference stage yeah exactly i think it's interesting and then there's people like so Sean Burns came for a prior podcast mm-hmm. um he founded a Pretty successful startup, Flurry. Yeah, I feel like I've heard of that. I don't know if you're sarcastic or not. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. And then um, he could have just stayed at Yahoo and been a middle manager, right? But no, he started another company from scratch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 that kind of serial entrepreneur. It's like it's, there's a thing that people have that that just want to keep building things. I wanted to keep building things. Yeah, I, I thought it. So I'm I'm a mentor for my accelerator, which mm-hmm. is not YC. It's Alchemist, and I give a class on angel fundraising. Mm-hmm. And the phrase I hate most is just tell us the hack. The hack? The hack I've to never get, even heard this. The hack to get to get angel money. Oh no. Yeah. So everybody has this idea that they write an email, send it to 30 people on AngelList, and then just cash the convertible note. Oh my god. And like, what's the hack? I'm like, there is no hack. Well, here I'll, I'll condense my talk. Yeah. You write down a list of everybody you know that has money. Yeah. You correlate that list with angel list to see if they actually angel invest. Yeah. You set up meetings with them. Yeah. You ask them for money. That actually wouldn't be how I how I'd describe it. Well, this is I, angel. This is angel fundraising. Yeah. No. No. So so suppose that that you make that list of people you know who have money, and then you discover that there's like two people on the list. Then how do you do it? Well, what I say is usually you have more people than you think. So the the way so that, so, 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 I, so I do this with people like I don't know anybody. I'm like, okay, I know you worked at PayPal. Right, right. Well, yeah. Okay. If you so, so people are always so. I, I then people come for one-on-one sessions, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, I don't know anybody who has money." I'm like, "Okay, you worked at Yelp, right? Yelp is public. 
Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Er- so I mean, I, I came to Silicon Valley with with knowing nobody, right? And I started my company very shortly afterwards. And so the list of people who had liquid money was very, very low. I, that's the people who I feel sorry for because I. Well, I but the, the people the, there's a hack for that as well. It's that you talk to a bunch of entrepreneurs. You talk to like all the entrepreneurs that you know, and then you tell them that you're raising money, and then you ask them for introductions to well, the people that you know. Well, that's what I mean. So that you make, they know. So yeah. you make a list of everybody you know that has money. Oh, you so so you're viewing those those people who don't have money but like have a connection to money as as money. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, and so the the hack of like, I just want to send out emails that have money come in. I'm like, no. I didn't even want to send out emails. The other thing I didn't like was um, why does a CEO have to do this? Oh, because so they want to hire a. Why can't I hire somebody to go fundraise? I'm like, because I mean, it, it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like, the, 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 there's a there's a very intuitive logic that's like, well, it's it's a simple, repeatable process that other people are good at. You know, why can't they do it? Well, because then that person is your CEO. Right. Yeah. There's a tiny, tiny thing missing that is like the the fundraiser is the CEO. Well, more than that, that until people, Series C, probably. What people are really investing in is the core team. Right, 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 and they want someone who can stand up and, and stand in front of a PowerPoint slide and, and present something. Well, it's actually, a core part of being CEO. <laughs> I don't know if you're sarcastic or not. I, I, I'm, I, I'm I sort of semi-sarcastic at this point. I didn't point. use slides when I fundraised, at least at the angel level. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. I mostly had a conversation. You have a conversation, and you say, uh, and then you send them the slides afterwards. And then, I never sent slides. Oh, really? So that—that's what I should have done. But inevitably, there'd be someone who says, "Oh, can you send me the slides? I just want to show it to my partners." And then I would, and then like you know, it's halfway across the valley. And well, are these angel or seed? Uh, so at the so time my, my that ad- I was fundraising, there was a move for like VCs to invest in seed rounds because they they didn't really understand how the whole dynamic was playing out. They stopped doing that a couple of years later because it turned out to be a disaster. But I certainly talked to a ton of of VCs around it. Yeah, I think that's a very different thing, though. I think angels and seed are different. Yeah. Why do you think it was a disaster? Why was it a disaster for uh, so, so? It was signaling risk. Yeah. Um, people ended up with like three investors, uh, three VCs in their rounds. None of them would do the A, and as a result, nobody would do the A. Yeah, and and for the firms, they saw it as a funnel where we're going to invest in ten, and then maybe do the the round of two, if even. But then that basically shot those other ten. Yeah. Yeah, I remember talking to Bessemer in in the seed round, and and, and they offered to they offered to put in maybe a hundred k. And I had just, you know, had a big like schooling on signaling risk, and they're like, "Oh no, no, we 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 put it in under another name. Uh, so, like, so the the name on the cap table is not actually Bessemer." That's hilarious. Yeah. And then when it came to do the A, Bessemer didn't offer, didn't give us a term sheet. Oh, so you took it? So I I didn't take it because I was afraid of the signaling risk and had enough money anyway. And then when it came time to do the A, like if we'd had them in the round, like. It, it might have been this awful signal that that killed the that killed the A. Yeah, well, because then everybody's like, "Well, what do they know?" Right. And turns out, in the end, they knew nothing, and they just the, 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 there was various reasons they didn't do the A. Yeah, I've heard about this whole thing of scouts, like venture partners. Well, it's a real thing where like people will claim they're an angel, but they're actually investing for a VC firm. Oh wow! Right, because then they get the information, they pass it to the VC firm, and the the entrepreneur doesn't know. Yeah. Is that the right? That is shitty. Yeah, we gotta we gotta call time. So uh, okay, f- f- finishing thoughts on this. Interviewing is hard. Interviewing selects for sometimes the skills that are not the same as success. 
and, and I'd say no even, one knows how to interview for the skills that are success and maybe even knows what those skills are. And I'd say also that it can even select for stuff that is an anti-pattern for success. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. <laughs>